Does a fetus have a soul? What about a spirit? Is it a person? Does it have any identity at all? When? Is there something wrong with abortion? This isn't going to be an easy episode, but I can't talk about the soul, or identity theory, as we've been planning, without touching on this very emotionally divisive topic, which is suddenly back in the news. So, here we go. Ready? You've discovered the Pamology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now... The host of today's episode, the Pamology Society's founder, James Carvin. Where do I begin? Or when? And how do I approach this delicate topic? I'll start with a warning. Over the next few episodes, we really are going to talk about abortion. I also need to warn you that I had a hard decision to make in preparing this particular episode. I was afraid I couldn't adequately describe both the soul and the spirit in terms of personal identity or its value in the time I was allowed in one episode. I was right about that. I can't. But I also knew that you'd want me to get to the point. I'm guessing you'll like to know what pomologists think about abortion now that I've mentioned it. So I've decided to combine what really needs to be two episodes into one. To do that, this is going to take a little longer than most of our other episodes. I should also add a plug for the counterchecker here. Please help. I need to raise $1.4 million to adequately get it started, and it should take about nine months to develop. Then once it's up and running, it'll be the ideal place to follow up on any discussion that you find here. You can challenge any point publicly and watch a fair discussion ensue. The first thing I'd like to talk about there is the claims that I make in Pomology 101. As I hope you already know, the counterchecker is a truth machine that fact-checks, fact-checks, and creates a fair system for scoring truth claims. It's really very much needed in this world. Remember, we're giving away top hats to those who pass our free Pomology 101 course. Pomology 101 doesn't talk about abortion. It talks about the maximization of awesomeness. I've made the claim that I've proven maximized awesomeness is real. Bringing abortion into the discussion wasn't the original intention. That was sort of imposed on us when Roe v. Wade was back in the news, granting states the right to decide on policies and law regarding women's rights and fetal rights. Any discussion of abortion puts me in a predicament, of course, being male. Many will say that I have no right to speak on the subject, and I don't want to alienate my audience. But how can I talk about what a soul is if I don't? To resolve that problem, I'm going to ask that you separate legal issues from identity theory, at least for today. That way, we can continue the discussion of identity theory that we started before the possibility that Roe v. Wade might be overturned was in the news. And unless you have jumped into this blogcast late, you already know that when I started releasing it in November of 2021, we were having a reasoned discussion that was intended to lead up to the question of what we were. And we've already covered a lot of things, setting up the backdrop for this conversation. Now you may recall, for instance, that we already touched on the subject of conception when in episode 3 we considered the cloning of Captain Kirk. Remember? We weren't talking about fetal rights or women's rights. We were talking about identity. If it's true that life begins at conception, 
The question is, whose life? If twinning can occur up to 14 days after conception, then multiple identities can be associated with the same cells and the same DNA. Knowing this, which part of the cell mass should we associate with James Thomas Kirk number one, and which with James Thomas Kirk number two? Now, if you'll recall, I compared the twinning of embryos to the twinning of universes. If it's true that every good possibility takes place in the context of a multiverse, then the past history of any universe is actually a bundle of future universes sharing a past. A universe is not one, it's many. It's so many that it's difficult, if not impossible, to even count. If maximized awesomeness is real, then every shade of possibility that will contain any novel variety of goodness branches into a separate future history. And that's how every good possible thing occurs. This is the core tenet of pomology. It's what we're always here to talk about, and it begs the question of what we are in that context. It demands a compatible theory of identity. Now, among philosophers, the subject of identity theory centers around the mind-body problem. I've touched on that repeatedly, but spared you a lot of the details. In our last episode, I was careful to point out that personhood was not equivalent to the body or to the brain. Identity theorists look for a relationship of the body, the brain, and the mind. Aristotle might be worth reading for a start on that theory. Association of persons with a body or an organism is sort of problematic. It fails to consider how a person changes cells throughout a lifetime. In favor of the organism theory of personhood or personal identity is that there may be some continuity even if every cell in the body gets replaced. But what about brains and what about the mind? And what if a person has a brain transplant? Is a person their brain but not their arm or their hand? So think again. What if only the left side of the brain is transplanted and not the right? Who is it then? I think that to answer this question fairly, we need to realize that if we say that we evolve, then we aren't saying who or what we are. We're certainly not our body. The we-ness of what we are is retained somehow while the body changes or dies, including the brain. The body's more like a vehicle for what we are in it. And if we wind up with halves of separate brains, we, quote-unquote, have a combined consciousness of some sort. As a result, we also change our mind. What is the we-ness? What is the I in identity, if not the body organism? And what is it if we are in a multiverse? Obviously, the problem with identifying a person with a mind is that the mind also will change. And sometimes it doesn't have any thought at all. Sometimes it's unconscious. What if the mind doesn't remember itself? For instance, do you remember being a fetus? Do you remember being one year old? Do you remember what you had for lunch yesterday? The problem with the mental state theory of personal identity is that while there may be one organism that's producing consciousness at any given time, saying that you as a conscious 40-year-old is the same as you as a formerly conscious 4-year-old or a formerly conscious 4-month-old fetus leaves more continuity with the organism than with the mind. So the bodily organism can't be the person because the cells all die and are replaced with new cells. 
The mind also can't be a single person because the states of the mind also continually die and are replaced, even if there's some crossover in continuity. Now, in both cases, the continuity exists in something that keeps dying and returning in some new form, whether of a set of cells or in a new and different set of memories and awareness. Consciousness also is not a constant in this, though, and that's when continuity gets lost. Unconsciousness happens both prior to the development of a nervous system, as in the case of an undeveloped fetus, and during anesthesia, and during deep sleep, comas, and other types of conditions. Does unconsciousness mean there's no person? Is a person in deep sleep or a coma no longer a person? Why call them a person? And let's not forget that the odds of your consciousness occurring at a given point in time are best explained if your consciousness is constant rather than temporary. Now we've gone on about that at length in previous episodes. In the last episode, I identified the mind as belonging to a person. I didn't say that the mind was the person. I also showed why the mind has to be more than an organism. It's not just a brain. Do you remember? It's because of probability. The fact that the best explanation given the probabilities of consciousness occurring right now are so poor. Whereas if you have consciousness constantly, then they are 100%. Remember? The mind may be enabled in consciousness by a body to be aware of a place and time, but it's best described as the world of awareness that a person has in a restored, dualistic framework, unique to pomologists. A person has a mind. A mind is not the person. A person's mind can change. So, if not a mind, not a brain, and not a body, then what is a person? Let's go deeper. Pomology always goes back to maximized awesomeness. Like a mind, a person doesn't add anything to maximized awesomeness that maximized awesomeness doesn't already have. A person can be no more than a relational sharing in the fullness of the good possibility that maximized awesomeness has. A person is a relational part wholly other than maximized awesomeness itself as a relation, yet also part of maximized awesomeness itself. Similarly, the minds which persons have are wholly other, yet also part of maximized awesomeness itself. The omni-mind includes all thoughts of all minds. The omni-mind of maximized awesomeness. It knows both all-knowing and all-unknowing. It knows the discovery, and it knows relations. It knows discovery by knowing what it is to be any and every person, with any and every thought, every mind. Yet, as a whole, it's not that lesser thing. The lesser thing, the person, and the lesser mind, simply shares in the abundance of the greater. And if that wasn't true, then maximized awesomeness would lack some good thing. So we know that it is true. If you want to see with certainty that maximized awesomeness is true, then take our free Pomology 101 course and earn yourself a top hat. Maximized awesomeness is true. So what's a soul? And what's the difference between a soul and a spirit and a person? If pomologists are dualists believing in souls, is there any distinction between any of these things? Do you remember the multi-level nested digital library that I described in episode 12? 
There were two types of conscious beings, accessors and accessees. The accessors were atemporal in relation to the lives that they accessed. They had access to the whole digital library. They weren't subject to its laws of time as atemporal beings. Now, we have the habit of thinking in time because that's what we experience. We tend not to think about the fact that it would be awesome if we were interdimensional beings who could access more than one universe and more than one version of ourself. As a result, when we think of a soul, we tend to think chronologically in reference to one universe and one soul. We think about what happens to our soul after we die. And some of us, not all of us, think about what happens to the soul of a fetus after it dies or it's aborted. And that habit fails to consider the multiverse. In the multiverse, we need to view persons as possessing souls, groups of souls, bundles of souls, not just single individual souls. A person is an accessing identity. A person is who we are, not just what we are. A soul is a description of what we are as an accessee, not who we are as an accessor. We only point to souls as who we are because we're talking about the soul of a person. So the person is not the soul, it's the soul of the person. It's a person who accesses a temporal life, or a bundle of them. A person accesses a human body with a brain and does so from an extratemporal framework. An organism, body, and brain can be associated with a bundle of souls. Persons access their souls. In some cases, the person accesses interactively. In other cases, the person just enjoys the ride of a soul in a deterministic universe. Remember? Episode 12. The soul itself is the soul of a person who accesses lives from one particular library of lives. The person is not chronological, they're atemporal, able to access any point in time in any life in the library of lives associated with it in their soul-filled library. Spirit is a broader term, as I'm going to use it here. The library has many levels, nesting libraries within libraries. A spirit is something with a character that can be shared by multiple persons in multiple libraries. Some types of spirits have characters that change and others don't. Some spirits are persons and others are not. As an example, maximized awesomeness itself is a spirit. It's the spirit of perfection. But it's not just one person. The character of maximized awesomeness doesn't change since it's perfect. It's one, and it's whole, and it's complete. Yet, it's best described as having three relations of personhood sharing one perfection, one perfect spirit. It's the perfecter, it's the perfecting, and it's that which is perfect. So those are three relational identities as persons. Personhood is an identity. Persons share spirits, and souls are sub-identities of persons. Similarly, persons can also be spirits. In fact, each person is a spirit, the spirit of that person, with all of its character. More than identity, they have a character in relationship. Now, in some cases, and in some ways, that character can change. But in other cases and ways, that character won't change. 
Change requires temporality. It requires some association with a universe or a set of universes that have dimensions of time to change in. Whether a person changes in some aspect is a matter of reference. We can possess both temporal and atemporal aspects of what we are as persons. From the perspective of a temporal universe, even maximized awesomeness changes. It has a relationship with it in time, even though maximized awesomeness itself is atemporal. Let me bring this to a more classic example. God has a relationship with people through history, right? That's what you were taught. And God at the same time doesn't change. So if God's complete and perfect, then God doesn't change, yet manages to have some relationship in a historical universe. Persons can do the same, not just God here in this. Words like soul and spirit come loaded with traditional ideas, a lot of which can be confusing. Pomologists are going to use the terms in very specific ways to clarify what we are in terms of identity theory one way or the other. The nested library containing nesting libraries within itself involves being accessed at various levels, and we're looking for a good way to describe that. Now, among the people that use words like spirit and soul, a person is usually thought to have a soul and sometimes also have a spirit. The terms soul and spirit are sometimes also used interchangeably. We're going to dispense with that here. Let's look at experience from two basic directions. Temporality, in other words, universes with a dimension of time, and atemporality, universes without a dimension of time. A spirit, the way that we're going to use it, is a character that can be shared by multiple persons and multiple souls whereas the spirit of a person is that person. They're capable of sharing many of the spiritual aspects of what they are as sharers in some portion of maximized awesomeness, but they're not capable of sharing their personhood itself, because their personhood is their very own unique identity and relationship with maximized awesomeness. The person is a spirit, but is the person a soul? Or do they just have a soul? Remember that souls can be bundled so that sharing is entirely uniform, but as universes are split, variety results rather than uniformity. From the perspective of temporal universes, we should see souls as unraveling bundles. So that in the past, there's a bundle of souls all sharing one history. In the future, that bundle of souls unravels as it splits. Are persons being bundled and unbundled as this happens, or just souls? I say just souls. To understand why, we need to try something that we normally don't. We need to imagine viewing things from an atemporal perspective. What we see from the atemporal viewpoint is a giant library of moments in an enormous number of universes. From here we could ask, who sees from an atemporal vantage? What identifying entity accesses the lives of so many versions of self, so many possibilities of souls? A person does. A spirit. A person. A spiritual person. Persons are spirits. They don't just have spirits. They are spirits. All persons are spirits, but not all spirits are persons. The spirit of perfection, for instance, is not a person. It's the character of three relational persons. Now the soul, all bundled up as many souls in a variety of temporal universes, belongs to a person, not necessarily many persons. 
A person has a soul and temporal souls come in bundles. So a person has many souls. Bundles of souls would be fragmented into many persons if they didn't have any spiritual connection with an accessing person. But they do. And that's why we can look at someone and say they're a person with a soul. Their soul is that connection point to their real spiritual identity as a person. We aren't in the habit of thinking of that spiritual soul as an unraveling bundle, or of that person as being related to so many other versions of unraveling bundles of souls. Nevertheless, on account of the multiverse, that is what souls are. Now, I know this sounds complicated and unfamiliar, but rest assured, I'm simplifying, as any philosopher familiar with identity theory would agree. Also, this may seem irrelevant and unrelated to the topic of abortion, but it can't be avoided. We need more precise terms than what we've been used to using. We need to base our terminology on a framework of foundational logic rather than religious tradition. Like it or not, the picture gets increasingly complicated and weird as you think about it. Since the future goes on to act like the past, to be entirely accurate, what's being unbundled over time is groups of souls corresponding to groups of universes that are being unbundled, unraveled, together as groups, as bundles of universes over time. From there, we need to level up. If libraries are nested inside one another, then persons must also be accessing persons accessing souls in bundles. If the person is a spirit with an identity that's being accessed by a still higher identity, then a person, though they may be atemporal in relationship to the souls that they access, may still be temporal in relationship to the spirits that they are accessed by. That means that a person, though a spirit, is also a sub-identity of a higher spiritual identity or arch-spirit. Tradition speaks of archangels and angels as spirits, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. We formed a habit of looking at those things as if they were commanders of armies of angels, right? If we don't see it as mythical fancy, then we think of authority rather than identity when it comes to archangelic spirits. We're in the habit of viewing even archangels as temporal beings. But if we don't view time as something moving forward uniformly, but as something where all points of time in all universes are continually accessed, then the unraveling, unbundling concept doesn't apply either to souls on any bottom rung or to persons on any level of any accessed library or accessing library. What applies is simply the full potential of all the entities involved. The spirit, or the spiritual person, being a character of something, engages in activity that's immaterial and abstract, while the soul engages in material activity. And that's the primary difference of the soul. It's engaging in material activity. Now, if this universe was all you were, and you were just one soul, then none of any of this would matter. But you are a person who accesses libraries full of souls. Each soul is a different version of you, corresponding to a different universe. And it's all tied together by what you are as a spiritual person. That's what you are. You're not your brain or body or mind in one universe, you're a person accessing a temporal sphere, sharing portions of the omni-mind of maximized awesomeness.
In a hierarchy of things, spirits are on the top tier. Persons are identities that can share in spirits. And souls are bundles of sub-identities belonging to persons. Spiritual entities are capable of taking on material life as persons with souls. So souls have spirits in that sense, indirectly through persons. The soul's the part of the person that's referenced from the standpoint of a particular time in space, in a universe that includes the dimension of time. The soul, from that perspective, is the person. We don't see any difference. If we haven't been taught otherwise, we might imagine a person with a spiritual soul, an eternal person with an eternal soul. Also, if you're a Christian, you might describe the soul as something that can be spiritual, drawn to glorious things, or carnal, drawn to evil things and bodily appetites. You might speak of a spiritual soul and a carnal soul as two different types of souls, or one soul that could go one direction or another. You might also speak of the nourishment of the soul, the soul that feeds on spiritual things like prayer and good advice. will grow spiritually, right? And the soul that practices evil things like stealing and hurting other people for personal gain will experience a loss of its spiritual nature by doing that. You know, draws away from God, gets lost. You've probably heard those descriptions before, haven't you? Falling away? I'm not going to reject those descriptions, but like the Apostle Paul, in making this distinction, I'm going to point out our real identity, showing you why no evil really exists. Maximized awesomeness would not allow that, would it? We've already covered that. You probably remember this. Paul says that if he does the things of the flesh, not loving them, but does the things that he hates, he says, it's no longer I who do them, but sin in me. Sin and the doing of sin is separated from the person. The person's identity is spiritual, while their carnal nature has nothing to do with who they really are. They die to that person to live in Christ as a spiritual creation born from above. The pomologist is going to see maximized awesomeness as informing us of what the soul really is. The carnal soul has no place in that picture. Only the spiritual soul does. Since in maximized awesomeness, anything that would be bad is illusory, existing only as a construct serving good relationships with respect to it. And like Paul, we can see sin and acknowledge that it isn't part of what we are or what we want to be. We can look to the heavens as the place of our true identity and anticipate a new heavens and a new earth to which we actually belong as the form of this world is melting away. According to the psalmist, sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. In other words, an infinite amount of space or distance. The pomologist is going to say it never really existed at all. Still, none of us experiences life entirely without seeing sin or evil anywhere, so how does that work? The pomologist is going to say that there is no carnal soul other than an imaginary one. It's not who you are. Such a thing would have no part in maximized awesomeness. Do you imagine yourself to be a carnal being, one inclined only to sin? Well, then don't fret. That's neither who nor what you are. It's only a thought about you and your circumstances that you're having and can respond to in some good way. Seize the day. Let's summarize. The soul's carnality is illusory, as is all evil. Its relationship with any material world is wholly good and holy. The soul is personhood from the viewpoint of space and time only. 
we tend to see the soul as something that graduates after death to some reward like heaven or hell or reincarnates to another life. For dualists, soul and personhood is typically seen as this sense of personal continuity that exists first in an organism and its brain and mind, and then afterwards in a resurrection or a transformation or reincarnation of some kind that leaves this body and brain behind. The story of a soul in an afterlife is seen as temporal, too. It progresses over time. It's everlasting. And there's nothing wrong with that. In every case, the soul is associated with a person. It's a person's soul. That doesn't mean it's not also an atemporal person's soul. The person experiences and includes that temporality within himself. But a person can be entirely immaterial, too. A person doesn't have to be associated with any material world. They can be entirely immaterial. On account of the creative imagination of omniscience, the number and the type of spirits and souls and whatever types of creatures in every variety of the universe might as well be innumerable. I don't know who can count them, but I know I can't. Now that we know what we are, what does all this have to do with abortion? Well, we now have the necessary backdrop for the discussion of any moral topic, including abortion. The reality is that you are a soul in a bundle of souls connecting you to the multiverse through the spiritual glories to which you belong as a person in unity and communion with a multi-personhood. You're not just a soul, but also a spirit sharing in the glory of individual mind, multi-mind, and the omni-mind of maximized awesomeness. That's what you are. When does life begin? At conception? Does the possibility of twinning after conception lead to a later date for personhood? Or does it lead to a bundled set of persons and souls sharing the same set of cells and DNA in the same universe from the date of conception? What does consciousness have to do with it? If time is subject to consciousness and a fetus is not conscious, then is there any sense in which terminating it would be a sin? Also, if it's all good, as in maximized awesomeness, and there's no such thing as evil, why does right or wrong matter? Well, there are actually still reasons. From the standpoint of the chronological soul, two things are affected by a termination of a pregnancy. First, the potential of every soul in that particular bundle for a very great number of future universes. And second, the potential each of those souls had for the benefit of each of those corresponding future universes. It might be tempting to say that if there's nothing evil in maximized awesomeness, there can be no evil in terminating pregnancies. And in fact, from the standpoint of a soul, Sharing the holy mind in communion with the multi-mind and the omni-mind of maximized awesomeness, that's correct. There is no evil. But from the standpoint of the chronological soul in temporality, there is a relationship to time and space in not just one universe, but as many universes as possible futures could contain. The removal of that soul from one material universe changes the potential of not just one universe, but every universe it will ultimately split into as it unravels. It not only robs a soul of one life, 
but a bundle of them, a huge bundle, and a bundle of universes that correspond to them. <laughs> so there's a lot. You think you're killing one person, you're actually killing whole universes. So it's all good, and yet it's all so weighty at the same time. Now that would sound harsh if I was trying to make you feel guilty here. I'm not. On the contrary, maybe the rationale for getting an abortion or justifying it is correct. Maybe we should be looking at the best possible trade-offs in a world that's full of crisis and consider all of the possible worlds that could only happen if those pregnancies were terminated because it works two ways. That would be something philosophers call utilitarianism, but it would be a very complex calculation. We'll get to that in the coming episodes. My goal here in discussing identity is to lay a foundation for thinking through moral decision-making in all of its complexity. We need to know why something might be wrong, not just whether it is wrong. What we're after is understanding. The imperative to maximize awesomeness comes from understanding what we are so that we can know what our purpose is. We can figure that our purpose in any world is to do our part to add goodness to it, to maximize our personal awesomeness. There's also a relationship that we have to maximized awesomeness into any universe that we find ourselves in. You may think this sounds like the Blues Brothers here, but we're on an assignment from God. Our personhood is not something that we gave ourselves. It's something bestowed on us by sharing in some portion of the goodness that lacks no good thing. Maximized awesomeness. We're a spiritual people in that way, as entities. And in that sense, even our own identity isn't even ours. Nothing of what we are is actually our own. It's all given to us. It's on loan. We're here on loan with a purpose to improve the universes we're being unbundled into, to do what we can to make them as awesome as possible. Now, if you've aborted a child, unburden yourself from the guilty feelings associated with robbing their life. As persons, there are many universes in which their lives are not taken. It's their life in this specific bundle of universes that you've robbed them of, and not the others. And if that's a sin, it's also an illusion. You didn't actually have that abortion. You remember having it for the sake of doing some good thing according to your current state of understanding. Your sense of the past may well be an illusion. Simply look ahead and consider what you could do to add to the world's goodness and beauty from this moment forward, and the many worlds that can emanate from that. As for aborted preborns in the bundle of universes, every other good possibility happens to them, just not in this particular set of futures. They do have many great futures, just stemming from a different bundle. Now before going, I want to say thank you for your patience as we've tackled some very difficult topics here. Pomology presents a more complex view of these things than most people are used to, but I don't think it's possible to understand the ramifications of abortion or for any moral question at all without a good understanding of these things. We need to know where we stand in the universe. We need a sound identity theory and we need a firm knowledge of our purpose in this universe before we can move forward. We'll keep coming back to this. It'll serve as a backdrop as we descend the high mountains of metaphysics 
and enter the demanding world of day-to-day -day awesomeness. We've nailed down the hard parts first. Next time, we'll drive straight away into women's rights as we lay a groundwork for a system of morality that we can all agree on. It'll get easier from here, I promise. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it